Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great honor of talking again with my old friend and uh, mentor, uh, historian Fred Bodie. Welcome, Fred. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I'm sure our conversation is going to range all over the place because there's so much to talk about. Um, but the at least the premise of our conversation is that uh, the great historian Bernard Balin uh, passed away recently after an unbelievably productive and interesting life. He was, uh, what is it, like a year and a half shy of a century old, or he was almost 99, right? Late 90s. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I, late 90s. I'm pretty sure they said yeah. he was almost like he was like a, just a little bit uh, shy of 99, right? And yeah. uh, so uh, we thought that since, you know, there's so many people that got into um, intellectual history got into like constitutional thought um, because they read his very popular book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. We thought, hey, wouldn't it be great to read that book again now um, and and talk about it? So uh, that's what we've done. So I guess I would like to hear your what is your sort of opening thoughts on uh, reading reading Balin again after, you know, probably, I mean, it's the first time I read it in uh, probably 20 years. So it's the first time I read it in probably at least that long. I, I certainly used it for my courses. I used it when I was developing my lectures, you know, I used it in graduate seminars. So it was a book that I used a lot when I was teaching. And uh, it, a lot of it actually holds up remarkably well. Uh, I never was altogether convinced by Balin's take on the origins of the America, of the American Revolution, but you know that really doesn't matter. You know, it was a provocative book, and it's still a provocative book. Uh, and I think it has something to say for our own time, too. You know, in its uh, discussion of conspiracies, cabals, and corruption. Uh, very much has something to say for our own time. And I think really put its finger 
on an important element in American political culture as it was beginning to develop around the time of the revolution and then would obviously develop further uh, in the centuries that followed. And what is that thing he puts his finger on, do you think? He puts his finger, I think, on the conspiratorial thinking in American political culture. And other historians have done that too, uh, most notably Richard Hofstadter in The Paranoid Style of American Politics and Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, uh, works by uh, another truly great historian that you know still, although in some respects dated, everything gets dated, still have a lot to say about uh, where the United States is as as a country. Yeah, I I I thought that too about the conspiratorial thinking where he he just demonstrates how once you get enough people to believe in a conspiracy theory and they get and they start all that motivated reasoning kicks in and they start looking for any sign that somebody's trying to like take over and become a tyrant and topple their liberties. Once you establish that kind of uh worldview and enough people buy into it it's so self-perpetuating because it's like it's total like Karl Popper like it can't be falsified I mean I'm sure you've tried to talk to somebody who's really really in the grips of some sort of uh, perfect airtight theory nothing can touch them any any example that you would think would maybe uh, shed cause them to doubt what they're saying. Mm. That just proves how deep the conspiracy goes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was listening to uh, a journalist the other day, and uh, uh, he was talking about going to Trump rallies and talking to people. He had to get there like over a day early to line up to actually get into the rally. So he had a lot of time to talk to people who were who were lining up. And he said it was remarkable. He didn't really think there were that many people who believed that Michelle Obama is a man, that Barack Obama is gay, and their children are adopted. But he said there are a lot of people out there who actually believe that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, I think I, I mentioned this to you the other day, but uh, I had, I had drinks with. Uh, with a, an old friend of mine, um, this was uh, just a few weeks ago, and he's a very, very nice guy. He's a he's a he's a really nice guy. He's uh, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things to say about this guy. He's a wonderful son. He's a great husband. He's, as far as I can tell, a wonderful father. He's like a really he's a, and he's been a great friend. He's a great guy in every respect. But he has uh, really gone in hard for the whole QAnon thing Mm -hmm. and like really, really, really hard into it. And he was explaining. And so we talked about this for a a good two hours at Elsa's. And I just, by the end, I was, I was almost like kind of, I was rattled. Like I was rattled for, for hours afterwards. I felt like I had like a, like a, crazy contact high or something like I really like I felt uh, and the last time last time I've had an experience of talking to somebody like that was talking to like 
really intense like Pentecostals who believe in demonology and believe that, you know, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and like who really buy into mm -hmm. that there's these demons controlling everything and it's spiritual warfare and like uh it it felt like talking to somebody who's in that uh, headspace and it, it felt like that in the set in the sense that there's just this completely airtight conspiracy theory and this guy was telling me he's looking me right in the eyes like i'm looking at you right now fred and he's telling me that there are a, there's a child sex ring that's run and the clinton foundation is in on it and the, and the church is in on it and uh illuminati is real and they've been doing this for a long time um absolutely bonkers like he was saying and i kept pointing out you know i wasn't i wasn't trying to be like a dick or anything i was being i was trying to be mm -hmm. like polite and i was mm -hmm. trying to because i i sort of to some extent i felt like a bit of an anthropologist like wow i actually got a live one you know i want to mm -hmm. like hear what you know how you and this is a very smart guy this is not a dumb person this is a well-educated guy and he's completely in on this and every objection that i brought up like everything to well, there couldn't be that many kids that were oh, and Satanists they're in on mm -hmm. too. Uh, every objection I brought up, um, you do realize that like there are records of how many kids are born every year. And yes, there's some kids that are born in like rural hippie communes or super religious groups or some weirdos that have them at home. That does happen, uh, but it's a very small number. And so the number that you've told me of how many kids were sacrificed um, last year, and I got, a, I, I opened my phone mm -hmm. and I went to the government uh, statistics and the American government. You can see how many kids were born in the state of Florida or in the country, and oh, the number he had given me. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's exactly again, what he said. Yeah, right? it's, it's not falsifiable. falsifiable. I said there, there weren't enough kids born in the last 10 years to produce that kind of a body count that mm. you're saying, it's, it's literally impossible. Like, where do you think they're getting all these babies and nobody's noticing that they're gone? Well, you know they have places where they grow them. <laughs> like, they have women that are enslaved and they mm. grow them, and then when they're born, they use their babies for, uh, for sacrifice and uh, people drink their blood to get young. And, uh, by the way, you know, George Soros is doing this and all these people, like... Just completely airtight, right? And I, I mean, where does where does this lead? If you have a if you have a significant number of people who mm -hmm. believe something like that, where does it lead? But to another revolution or a civil war? That's right. Well, it's very unusual to have uh, a national leader in the United States, anyway, uh, purveying these ideas. And Trump repeats QAnon stuff all the time. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, getting back to, to, to Balin, uh, you know, he, he also introduced into the debates about the American Revolution something that went beyond the grand ideas uh, of the liberal tradition beginning with Locke or ideas about uh, balance of power and, uh, you know, Montes um, um, anyway, uh, and all of that, uh, or French Enlightenment thought or Puritan thought. And actually, he has little patience with the sort of Puritan tradition in American historiography. And it's interesting to look back at Balin's 
you know, background in terms of the kind of intellectual tradition he comes out of. Uh, he had, among other teachers at Harvard, uh, both Perry Miller and uh, Admiral Morrison. Who's okay? Perry Miller, of course, okay. I know he's the great yeah, the historian great, the of great the Puritans, Miller. and he also was uh, he taught Margaret Atwood. The yes, Handmaid's yes, Tale is yes. based on her studying with yes, him. Yes, yeah. yes, and but um, I don't know the other guy. Okay, some uh, Elliot first name escapes Elliot Morrison Samuel. That's it, Samuel Elliot Morrison, uh, who. Uh, you can tell by his name, Eliot and so on, comes from an old Puritan background himself. But Morrison was really interested in seafaring. He becomes an admiral during the Americans during the Second World War, and uh, he was interested in merchandising and trade, sort of the nitty gritty stuff. He was also interested in voyages of discovery. Uh, he wrote a book. A biography of Columbus, a very favorable one, though it's sort of out of favor now, <laughs> called, called Admiral of the Ocean Sea. And uh, Balin imbibed more from the Morrison tradition than the Miller tradition, also at Harvard, and they must have been there around the same time, uh, was uh, Edmund Morgan. Oh, wow. Other great colonial and revolutionary period historian. Yeah. And Morgan followed in Perry Miller tradition. He had his students, and I can speak from experience, do things like analyze Puritan sermons. And people who did their doctorates under him, I, I wasn't one, um, did things like you know, the Puritan idea of good government, you know, things like that. Um, whereas Balin, his, his first book based on his dissertation is New England Merchants in the 17th Century. Uh, and you can see the, uh, the Morrison influence here. Uh, and he looked at trade patterns between Boston and England. He looked at, you know, records of shipping, things like that, and, you know, argued that in the early part of the 17th century, there was this kind of disjunction between Puritan ideas of what are good and bad ways to make money and merchants who are, you know, looking for the main chance. And ultimately, by the latter part of the 17th century, the merchants effectively become independent of the old Puritan regime and pretty much go their own way and really chart the future course of at least one aspect of New England history. Uh, you know, so it was this interest in transatlantic connections, uh, transatlantic trade more than ideas, in his dissertation, which was published. It's still a very important book. Um, another very, very important piece that he published fairly early on in the William and Mary Quarterly uh, was on social structure 
in colonial and 17th century Virginia. He's not talking about ideas here. He's talking about social structure. Uh, And he argued in that book that, again, after the middle of the 17th century, the founders of Virginia were basically dying out because of disease, lack of women, and so on. And younger sons of English gentry were coming to Virginia to seek their fortunes and owning land and ultimately buying slaves and so on, and that this group constituted the basis of the Virginia ruling class or the revolutionary class. This was the basis for the ancestors of the Jeffersons and the Madisons and the Washingtons and so on. Um, So social structure, trade, economics, empirical data, and he also wrote a book on edu- uh, on education in the colonial period. Um, it had more to do with ideas, but it was also about the transmission of learning. And almost all of the stuff that he's doing has this transatlantic perspective. Uh, and when he comes to do the ideology of the American Revolution, it's really in many ways, a very different kind of book from what he'd written before. But, you know, one thing that maintains is this transatlantic perspective. The American revolutionaries are reading uh, English writers who were the uh, commonwealthmen, uh, people writing in the so-called Republican tradition, who were very much concerned and agitated about corruption in England in the 18th century. Whigs, they were sometimes with Whig opposition. They thought that the court was, to use a later word, a big swamp. (laughs) (laughs) And what they had to do was drain the swamp and get rid of all the corruption and so on and so forth. Um, So, you know, there's that book. But, you know, then in his later work, you know, he keeps publishing tons of stuff. It's demographic studies. Uh, and, you know, that's the stuff that he was working on in the later part of career of his career, looking at migration patterns. He wanted to see where all the colonists came from in Europe. And he has all these studies that shows, you know, how people were leaving Eastern Europe and going to different places and across the Atlantic and so on. And, you know, in the process was one of the founders of the discipline of Atlantic history, which mm-hmm. became really big beginning, oh, I guess, in the 1970s or 1980s, which looked at the Atlantic region as a as an entity for study, to look at trade patterns, migration patterns, transfer of ideas, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's been much criticized for taking too narrow a perspective. We should think globally rather than Atlantically. Uh, <laughs> most of England's trade was with continental Europe, not with the colonies, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever the case, he was one of the founders of that discipline. You know, So the ideology of the American Revolution was simply one stage in his intellectual development. And you know, some of his students took off uh, from from that perspective, and and went on and did and did work uh, in that in that kind of genre, but you know others, you know, were these people who were studying 
the demography of New England towns. Yeah. A lot of these people were Balin students, like Philip Grevin. You know, so it wasn't just people who were doing the history of ideas. You know, I'm mean, Balin's influence was sort of far and wide and in disparate areas. Yeah, I remember uh, when we read when we read this book uh, in grad school in Dorothy Ross's intellectual, American Intellectual mm-hmm. History seminar. I remember Dorothy Ross saying um, that you know one of the ironies of of this book is that Balin is often considered to be you know one of the people that really kind of reinvigorated intellectual history and history of ideas and all this stuff. And and she said, but he doesn't have much interest for. Uh, intellectual history and history of ideas. He kind of left that a while ago, and uh, and he's made it very clear in a number of conference, uh, you know, roundtables and stuff like that that he thinks um, that the field is is uh, you know a lot of bullshit in it. That it's it's a lot of like sort of very theoretical speculations that don't touch down to anything concrete. And he had moved into. Uh, much more, you know, the kind of stuff you've done, counting churches, doing like looking at the census, like being almost more like a social scientist, like wanting to mm-hmm. say, yeah. you know, I don't want to just like, you know, keep trying to nail jelly to the wall. <laughs> that famous <laughs> definition of intellectual mm-hmm. history. I want to actually be able to say something concrete about, uh, you know, who we are and where we came from and mm-hmm. why. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, that's, that's interesting. Yet I think this remains probably his most influential book. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really really good. I mean, I I especially like in the later chapters of the book, which I I didn't remember from reading it in the past, that once he's constructed this edifice and he's he's sort of he's explained to you what the ideology of the American Revolution is, and he's told you that uh, all these Enlightenment thinkers. Yeah, they drew on them, but uh, they didn't produce anything quite that polished and theoretical. Uh, and these Puritan thinkers, ah, they use religious language, but they're not really leaning on that very heavily. Uh, and once he's established what it is, then he comes out with this analysis that sounds very kind of like Hofstadter, uh, you know, 1950s consensus school that, oh, the differences between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists are not that big, actually. Once right. you understand what the ideology yeah. is, you realize they actually agree on so, so much. They agree on uh, that a lot of our debates that we have about you know the, the different figures in the, the revolution, and we act as if they're actually taking these different views of human nature and the nature of government and republics. That's not true at all. He's like, they actually agreed and he, and he provides like the proof, which I think that is something you can't do that until you've created this edifice of what the ideology is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, perhaps, uh, for, for your listeners, you know, a a bit of historiographical background, uh, would be, would be useful because, uh, before the the sort of consensus generation, oh, can you just which, explain what the consensus is? Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll get to it. Okay, okay, <laughs> I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Which emerges after the Second World War. Really, uh, the dominant perspective was the so-called progressive school. That, in in the historian Carl Becker's words, uh, the American Revolution was as much a struggle. Uh, about home, about who should rule at home, 
as it was a struggle over home rule. That is, it involved class conflict. And there were elites trying to protect their economic interests, and they were trying to put down small yeoman farmers and urban artisans. Uh, you get a reemergence of this in the 1960s as well. But this was sort of the dominant perspective, to some extent influenced by Marxism uh, in the 1930s, you know, very sort of typical of Depression-era Depression era history. Uh, the, the Beards, Charles yeah. and Mary Beard. Charles They're, and Mary Beard. You know, the economic all origins. All conspiracy theories and the, class conflict. And, the economic origins of the American of the, of the American Constitution. Uh, the idea that the drafters of the American Constitution were using the Constitution to protect their own economic interests. And that the Constitution was kind of put over on on the rest of the population. Uh, and uh, We've come uh, full circle. Yeah. We're right back to that yeah, with the yeah. 1619 Project oh, of yeah, the New York yeah, Times. Yeah, I was going to talk like, about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah, but that's should, all right. Should, no, we can we – can't. No, no, keep with that and we'll, that. Get, we'll get I to that. I want to talk about yeah. that. But, um, you know, during the Cold War period – I mean this simplifies a lot. But basically during the Cold War period when, you know, everybody had to come together – uh, we're all Americans. Close ranks, we have to stand, yeah. Close ranks, stand up against communism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the idea that America was this kind of unique civilization, American exceptionalism. And it really goes back to much older traditions in historiography, like the Whig tradition, that the history of the so-called Anglo-Saxon world was a history of the flowering of liberty and so on and so forth. And Americans came together in the revolution. Uh, they basically believed uh, the same sorts of things. Uh, the revolution, revolutionaries uh, drew upon common, commonly held ideas and values uh, and came together, drafted the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, you know, and all of this created sort of one big happy family. I mean, that sort of comes to grief with the Civil War. It wasn't quite one big happy family, too. But uh, some of the consensus historians even had an answer for that. It was a war fought by two sides that basically agreed with each other. It was about differing interpretations of the Constitution. It really wasn't necessary. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, so, though that was probably the first part of the consensus edifice to fall. It was, you know, increasingly difficult uh, to to say that, you know, the Civil War really didn't matter, that you know, freedom of slaves didn't matter and so on. Uh, but uh, Balin, while I don't think he would say he was a consensus historian exactly, uh, he disliked labels. He never described himself, as far as I know, as anything except, you know, a kind of workaday and indeed workaholic historian. Um really contributes to that because, as you were saying, the idea that, you know, Americans had these – could come together on the basis of these shared fears and it was fears that they came together on, you know, and that's in a way how both he 
and Hofstadter differed from other consensus historians, someone like, you know, Daniel Burston, uh, the arch consensus historian in the 1940s and 50s, uh, whose work is basically a celebration of American life. And, you know, Hofstadter and Balin aren't exactly celebrationists. No. They're saying, yeah, you know, there was a consensus, but it wasn't a very nice one in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> they agreed upon a conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they they were able to kind of get fired up about that conspiracy theory. And mm -hmm. it, it explained – it was able to um, sort of – they thought predict the future – and it could mm -hmm. uh, it could interpret at a certain point. It didn't really matter. Uh, it almost didn't matter what the British government did. It would be explained as you know more and more. It's it's sort of like uh, if somebody you know, accuses you of being a witch, mm -hmm. or it, in our pre present climate, if somebody accuses you of uh, of gaslighting or of uh, you know. It, being like, there's nothing you can say, or, or in some contexts, being like a racist, right? There's absolutely nothing you can say. Uh, there's no evidence you could provide that would prove that you're not a racist because just the act of you not agreeing is further mm -hmm. evidence that you actually are, right? This is what uh, Karl Popper said he couldn't stand about Freud. It's like, you have to accept the Freudian psychoanalyst's um, assessment of your deep motives and what's why you're doing what you're doing and if you accept it well now you are starting to achieve enlightenment and you're on the road to mm -hmm. recovery but if you disagree with the psychoanalyst's analysis well then you're just in denial right yeah um, and this is or later on Gramsci with his false consciousness and you know hegemony and all this stuff so there are these circular arguments and once you can get enough people to buy into one of these circular arguments, it there's just no way to it. In many ways, I found uh, I found his book. It was sort of demonstrating how a community can actually self radicalize. You know, it's it's quite yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it takes people to to convince other people too but you have to convince other people on the basis of sort of commonly shared values and background right but um you know i mean if you look at the declaration of independence you know we all remember all men are created equal we hold these truths to be self-evident etc cetera, etc cetera. you know most people never really get much beyond the first paragraph <laughs> <laughs> because most of the document is this bill of particulars against King George. And the Declaration of Independence is just full of all of this stuff that Balin is talking about, this, this conspiracy against American liberty. You know, and that's how the American Revolution was, was justified, how the ideology took shape, was this notion of a conspiracy against liberty. You know, that was the basic idea. They borrowed this from English writers in the 18th century. Uh, it seemed to fit American. Once, you know, the 
beginning with the Stamp Act and so on. Uh, it seemed to fit American conditions as well. Uh, and it, according to Balin, proved uh, very compelling. And you see it you see it in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Yeah. So how do you think, just to go back to something you were saying before, because um, I, I kept thinking about, you know, the what would people who really, really like uh, the 1619 Project mm-hmm. on uh, the New York Times, which presents a view of American history that is very, very similar to the, the old kind of uh, Charles and Mary Beard yeah. view. It's, it's the progressive view. It's it's going right back to this idea yeah. that that these are just a bunch of slaveholders that don't want to pay their taxes. These are just a bunch of selfish. And anytime they talk in, in idealistic, highfalutin words, you should just like roll your eyes because the guy writing that is like having sex with his slave mm-hmm. and, you know, selling off his kids. And these are just a bunch of flaming hypocrites and, you know, as, uh, you know, who is it? He said, uh, isn't it strange that we hear the loudest cries for liberty among the drivers that of Negroes? Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson. So, like, just this idea that uh, these these people are all just flaming hypocrites. They're all full of it. Uh, and you should not take any of this seriously, which, of course, Balin takes um, the ideas very, very seriously, um, not per, perhaps not in an, exactly in an idealistic sense, but he he thinks that they really did care about freedom and liberty, right? Uh, they, oh, he does. And they, his last chapter is his most optimistic part, right? Yeah. Uh, because the last chapter says, well, you know, what was the consequence of all of this for future American development? You know, and there he gets more into the celebrationist side of the consensus historians. You know, he looks at slavery. Well, you know, all of this talk about slavery, how American colonists were enslaved to the British. Oh, you know, now it dawns on them, you know, we have slaves too. And he sees, you know, to to simplify the basis for the anti-slavery movement developing, people began to question the legitimacy of slavery. Uh, this is, of course, contrary to the 1619 Project. So, you know, he looks at slavery. He looks at constitutional government, the idea of written constitutions. Uh, the Americans were always claiming the British were violating the British Constitution. Well, the British Constitution was not written. It was a set of traditions, of practices, of institutions that, you know, existed before the memory of man. And uh, the Americans regarded it, or at least their understanding of it, as sacrosanct. But they said, ah, you know, the British are saying it's something else. So what we have to have are written constitutions. You know, so there can't be any debate over, you know, what is constitutional and what is non-constitutional. So the idea of written constitutions... And, you know, then he talks about freedom of religion. Uh, I mean, there were a number of issues prior to the actual outbreak of the revolution uh, that other historians, Carl Breidenbaugh, uh, had examined about how the British wanted to establish a Church of England episcopacy, bishops, in the United States. Um, The Church of England was established in many of the colonies, 
but there were no bishops. And because there were no bishops, the local grandees could basically control the church. There was no other authority, or at least no other authority nearby. So the idea of no established church uh, also is an idea that grows out of these uh, revolutionary or pre-revolutionary notions. And then um, what is it? There's there's another one he talks about. I um, can't remember what it is offhand. But anyway, there are these consequences of the revolution that then have this positive aspect for Balin. So, yeah. So the idea. But but just to, to, to push you on the, the whole 1619 project, I wonder what they would think of this book. I wonder what they would think of... Uh, because I think it just seems like such a massive contrast. You're hearing a very different idea about what uh, you know, American history is all about. And one of the things that... I like this is actually I think early on in the book where he talks about his his sort of his methodology um his you might say his epistemological methodology which I really mm -hmm. liked um and he said you know I think as much as possible you should have I I'm paraphrasing I can't, I can't remember the exact phrasing he used but he said you should have a charitable um approach to your your subject people you're studying um, and so that means you shouldn't uh, decide. And, and I thought that this was an implicit jab at at the old kind of conflict pro progressive school. He said, you shouldn't assume that you can see inside people and you know what their true motives are. Because, you know, I know that what you're going to say is uh, is basically just a lie because I I know that you're class position is X or your racial position is this, or you're a man or you're a woman or you live in this place. And so um, as, as Saul Bellow put it in uh, the forward to Alan Bloom's, the closing of the American mind, he said uh, the, the basic belief among American academics in this day and age seems to be uh, tell me where you are and I will tell 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 me where you're from, and I will tell you who you are, right? Mm -hmm. uh, tell me your like your what categories I can slot you into in terms of your religion, race, class, gender, sexual orientation. Tell me those things, and then I will tell you who you are, right? Uh, and Balin seems to sort of push back on anything like that and says, "No, let's actually assume that they really mean what they say. Let's assume that when they say they care about X." They really do care about X. If they say they're really afraid of Y, let's assume uh, because uh, not because that's always going to be true, just because that is on balance the the most fair minded way to approach these people. Right. Well, that's I don't know. That seems well, to have been totally rejected now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to to put in a word to uh, my my late teacher, Edmund Morgan, uh, one of his um, early books was the Stamp Act Crisis, and that precedes this by a number of years. Uh, and Morgan, you know, makes exactly that point before Balin does, you know, because the Stamp Act Crisis, the way progressive historians had looked at it, oh, these are 
merchants and financiers and stuff who are protecting their economic interests and everything that they're saying about taxation without representation is all hypocrisy and et cetera, et cetera. And Morgan says, no, he's going to look at everything he can get a hold of that people said about the Stamp Act, which he does. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible model of thorough research and goes on the assumption that, you know, his working assumption is that these guys pretty much believe what they say. You know, that they're not just hiding some sort of nefarious per purpose. And he says the ideas were, you know, too widespread, spoken by too many people, you know, to just assume that there was this cabal of merchants who were, you know, hypocrites from, you know, top to bottom. Yeah, in, in the smoky ideas. room with the whiskey yeah. and the cigars. Yes. Yeah, plotting. Exactly. <laughs> plotting. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know, of course, there was there was some of that. And, you know, I mean, Morgan, who took very seriously uh, Puritan ideas and Puritan ideas of original sin, uh, recognized that people have very mixed motives. But he said, you have to begin with what they're actually saying. And then, you know, you can work from there. But unless we really understand and take seriously what they're saying, we can't really go any deeper. Hmm. But when the American Revolution, I guess this is a question that is being asked a lot uh, about the United States and within and without, you know, is the United States this especially horrible, sinful place. I mean, clearly the United States has uh, lots of problems and it's had, it's had lots of problems for sure. Um, but is it an especially terrible place? You know, that's because I, I think the feeling that a lot of people have now, um, you know, is that the United States is just terrible. And yet, you know, you talk to people who've actually traveled a lot and they're like, what are you talking about? It's, it's like one of the, it's one of the safest, most uh, progressive, free, prosperous places in the world. Well, I would not entirely go along with that, but you know we can we can talk about that. Yeah, and so I guess one question that would follow for me is, what at the time of the American Revolution and then after the American Revolution was the United States, uh, the the early republic. Was this um, one of the freest places to to be in the world on average? Obviously, despite the fact that they had you know so many people in slavery and they had uh, women did not have the vote. Uh, you know, there's so many ways in which uh, it was still a minority of people who had freedom. But did they have more freedom than other places, or were they just a bunch of hypocrites that were using? Flowery no, language. I don't. I don't think they were a bunch of hypocrites. You know, some of them, you know, probably were, but um, yeah. I mean, if you weren't, I mean, every society discriminated very strongly between men and women. I mean, it, men had power, at least formally. Women did not. So. It's really difficult to compare the U.S. with other societies, um, though perhaps you can. But, you know, if you were white, 
you know, yeah. You know, I'd say that it probably was. You know, at least, you know, I don't know that much about Asian or African societies, but in terms of basically European societies, the larger European world, I would say yes. Yeah, that it that it was. Um, and, you know, why was it? Well, I mean, there are different answers depending upon where you found yourself. You know, if you, if you found yourself, uh, you know, somewhere in Massachusetts, you'd give one kind of answer to that. Uh, if you found yourself on the frontier fighting Indians, you'd give another answer to that and say, yes, we're free because we can carry our guns and we can kill Indians. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were in the South, you'd give another answer to that and say, yes, because we're white and we're better than anyone else. And I'm, you know, the, the small farmer, just as good, you know, as the guy in Those the grandees, the column, yeah. column yeah. mansion. Uh, and, uh, you know, here I can put in another word for uh, for Edmund Morgan, because probably his greatest book was American Slavery, American Freedom, in which he he was the first. He really anticipates, though I think in a much more compelling way, the 1619 Project in this book published in the 70s, I think it was. 1970s, American Slavery, American Freedom, in which he looks specifically at the colony of Virginia, you know, and asks the question, why in this colony, which had more slaves, not the largest proportion, but had more slaves numerically than any other colony, why did it produce a revolutionary generation that, yes, spouted ideas about freedom and liberty and constitutional government and separation of church and state and all the rest that we've come to take as part of, quote unquote, the American creed, right? Mm -hmm. This is a problem. And this is the problem he, he examines in that book and says that a growing body of poor whites, and he, it's, it's, it's a book where he uses like a lot of quantitative methods. You know, he goes like Balin, uses quantification and looks at, you know, tax returns and, you know, all the rest, uh, where there's growing impoverishment among the white society. The need to make a distinction the increasing need to make a distinction between whites who are all equal to each other regardless of you know how much land they own or how many slaves they have is what is really fundamental about our society and you know that has so much resonance as i know from my own research in you know the the antebellum south uh the the argument in the 1850s that a lot of southern democrats were making to reopen the slave trade the argument was we have to democratize slaveholding 
We have to make the South more democratic by allowing more people to own slaves. And you know, they actually sounds, use Yeah, it sounds word. wild. I mean, it sounds wild you know, now. I mean, it, it's inconceivable. But I think they really thought that. African-Americans in general, slaves in particular, were outside of the whole province of political discourse and political culture that was for whites only. And, yeah, I mean, there's this, this powerful element in which American slavery also becomes a basis, at least in, in large parts of the country, um, for American freedom. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a more subtle argument than the one I'm trying to summarize here. It took this huge book to make it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you can see elements of that in the 1619 Project. You can. And I, I like what, you know, our friend, uh, the historian Francois Furstenberg, who's uh, been on the podcast uh, before as well. Um, but he, you remember that article he wrote in the Journal, Journal of American History a number of years back where he sort of built on uh, Edmund Morgan's argument in American Slavery, American Freedom, and he said, you know, we have this idea that um, that somehow either these these slaveholders like Thomas Jefferson, who were, you know, talking all this shit about like freedom and liberty, and meanwhile that they're just horrible hypocrites somehow. Uh, that is sort of one option that we entertain, or that uh, you know he, he lists off a bunch of different possibilities. He said, actually, the truth is. Uh, is much sort of darker than that. Uh, the truth is that the reason why uh, the reason why people like in in Virginia are going to be so much more passionate, and why the the truly radical, I mean, as Balin says, the truly radical libertarians in in the revolutionary generation, most of them come out of the the South and the Southern and the slave states. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, Absolutely. He says the truth is that they're. It's not that they're hypocrites; it's that they see the reality of unfreedom in their faces every single day. They know what slavery looks like when they talk about slavery. They're not talking about it in the abstract, like the Freedom Caucus right now. You know, the, you know, in like in in Congress in the United States right now, the kind of. Rand Paul and libertarian kind of, uh, they're when they talk about slavery and tyranny, they're talking about it in a very abstract sense. Yeah, these people saw enslaved humans. Mm -hmm. They saw people beaten to death. They saw people whipped. They saw this, so it was not abstract to them. So of course they're much more. And I I find that argument, uh, whenever I've encountered that argument in history, I I tend to find it very very um, convincing that. Often we have this idea that people come up with their ideas uh, you know, just from reading stuff or abstract thinking. But very often, it, what was that wonderful article that you had me read decades ago? It was uh, Huston, The Experiential Basis of uh, Anti-Slavery mm -hmm. Activism, mm -hmm. where he showed that all these anti-slavery activists that, uh, that were criticized in their own time and definitely by like the consensus school and the revisionists mm -hmm. who said these shit disturbers, fire eaters and mm -hmm. abolitionists 
burn the house down. We didn't need to have a civil war. Slavery, slavery, not yeah. a big deal. It would have gone away by itself. It's like a, you know, it's like a zit. It would have gone away. And, and, and meanwhile, like this guy, Husted, he says like, no way. He said, actually, like the, the anti-slavery activists, they came to their activism uh, because they they had, and he went back and he shows with each one of them that they had some incredibly violent experience where they watched uh, an escaped slave get beaten to death by slave catchers mm-hmm. in the middle of like a square in Boston or mm-hmm. something like that, or that yeah. they 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 witn- witnessed some kind of incredibly traumatic mm-hmm. a- act, uh, and this radicalized them, mm-hmm. right? Like watching a police. A policeman put his knee on mm-hmm. on somebody's head and, like you know, just choked them to death, or shooting somebody seven times in the back. That you know, in the same way that people watching these YouTube videos, these cell phone clips of police brutality, it's radicalizing, right? Uh, well, he says that these abolitionists they didn't come to their ideas from abstract reasoning; they came from uh, from seeing this kind of violence. So, if you take that view of the slaveholders and of Jefferson then it's it's kind of it makes you shudder it's a little bit it's creepy uh but it makes sense it's very human yeah yeah and uh you know a lot of these guys were of course always privately never publicly uh aware that there was some kind of contradiction here and uh throwing up their hands saying oh yes we realize holding slaves is terrible, but beating my breast, there's nothing I can do about Got it. Got that wolf by the ears, Got that right? Wolf by the, wolf by the <laughs> Can't ears. let it go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were some. There were some though who who lived up to to their principles, um, and actually did free their slaves, and not just like Washington in his will when he died, but. Uh, uh, Edmund Coles, who was Jefferson or Madison's secretary and, you know, a well-to-do planter in Virginia. Being a secretary didn't, you know, was an important post, mm-hmm. right? like secretary of state. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and, you know, was there's this correspondence between him and Jefferson. And, you know, Jefferson encouraged, oh, you know, your ideas are exactly my ideas Slavery is evil. And, you know, then when Cole says, well, he's going to free his slaves and he's going to take them to uh, the territory of Illinois, which was free under the Northwest Ordinance, and freed them there and provide them land. Just, oh, no, Jefferson says, no, no, don't act too rashly. Uh, You know, this will come to an end in its own good time. Jefferson was sort of like the revisionist historians. <laughs> you know, it's going to come to an end. But but Coles, you know, follows through. He takes them to Illinois, uh, acquires land for them, and frees them. Uh, I mean, they become free by by going to Illinois. Uh, you know, so there were a few who were not only aware of this contradiction, uh, but acted on it. But but did acted on. Yeah. Did act on it, and it's no, yeah. I mean, there were there were you know lots of manumissions at around the time of the American Revolution. Um, you know, there's a reason why, and you know, whenever I tell this to people who who aren't 
you know, historians or whatever, they're they're very surprised. You know, I'll say, how many free blacks do you think there were in the slave states on the eve of the Civil War? And a person I asked that to recently said, 5,000. You know, no, there were a quarter million. Hmm. And, um, you know, they were descendants mostly of slaves who were freed, you know, in the aftermath of the American Revolution when Virginia for a number of years allowed manumissions. Later they changed the law. They didn't allow it. Um, and, you know, yeah, that, you know, the, the cynics will say this was because Virginia uh, was undergoing an economic decline and it was switching, it had been switching from tobacco to wheat and you don't need as many slaves in wheat uh, you know, so, uh, you know, people f freed their slaves. Um, and, yeah, sure, there were economic incentives to do it. That's absolutely no question about that. Uh, but, you know, there was a growing market for slaves in South Carolina. Um, and, you know, more... A lot were sold to South Carolina, but more could have been, you know. So there were there were slave owners who freed. I don't know how. I don't. I don't have the figure actually offhand, but you know, some thousands of slaves were filled and were freed. You know, in the in the period following the American Revolution. So there was that. Most, of course, the great majority did not. You know, and that's the fundamental fact great majority did not hmm. well i i mean this is that question that's always asked is you know they say well you know should you judge somebody by the standards of their time or do you judge them by our standards right and you know it seems fair to say well yeah i guess we should judge them by the standards of their time that seems that seems fair but you know you'll always find random exceptional people that are you know, by our standards, uh, way ahead of their time ethically. Um, so that you're going to find that. But at what point do you have kind of a critical number of people who are more enlightened than their peers where you can say that uh, Jefferson is guilty and he just he doesn't get a pass of, well, you know, he was just a man of his time. So he's a super smart guy, reads a lot, he's very worldly, travels. Yeah. At what point can you say, like, I ah, should have known better? Well, he he did, you know, in the deepest, darkest recesses of his soul, know better. And, you know, you can't say by the time of the American Revolution that there was no emerging, significantly emerging, anti-slavery movement. David Bryan Davis, you know, showed that a long time ago. And uh, The Problem of Slavery in the uh, Age, of, Age Revolution. of Revolutions. Great book. And more recently, um, uh, the historian Minasha Sinha, uh, I think you know her work oh, on yeah. South Carolina, yeah. you know, has very recently published a book on the history of abolition, um, which I haven't I haven't read yet. It's come out recently, but I've certainly read reviews, and 
it's, you know, people who have reviewed it said it's now going to become really the standard history of wow. anti-slavery and abolition in America. And she goes back. I really want to read this. we got to read this. Yeah, to the pre-revolutionary period, you know, and particularly emphasizes the role of black abolitionists, you know, who, yeah, they were always, and I'm not talking about the Frederick Douglass generation. I'm talking about the 18th century or Mm -hmm. the early 19th century. And there are other historians who have looked at them uh, as well. Sean Wilentz is another one who has. Um, But, um, yeah, you know, there was. There were a lot of people who were anti-slavery, who were sometimes anti-slavery in a kind of ambiguous way, well, you know, should can we can we live with freed slaves? Should they be? You know? But I mean, certainly not the black abolitionists. They were, I mean, they were genuine egalitarians. Um, and you know, for the sixteen nineteen project, um, you know, their their assumption was, of course, that it must be in the air because they. <laughs> They 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 criticize attack, you know the people who who didn't free their slaves or who talked the good line but didn't follow up on it, um, and you know of course they 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 too I mean sustain that view because they see the Constitution as a pro-slavery document, you know I mean they're they're picking up on this debate that goes you know with Garrison and Salmon P Chase and and others. Uh, who you know well, mm-hmm. um, about whether the Constitution was anti-slavery. And, of course, they not only say the Constitution was anti-slavery, but that the American Revolution was all about protecting slavery, or a good chunk of it, all about that, but a good chunk of it was about protecting slavery, um, which I think is mostly wrong. Um and it certainly becomes increasingly right in a way uh, during the course of the American Revolution, when particularly slaveholders are, you know, extremely worried about their slaves defecting to the British. And Lord Dunmore, as as you know. Uh, proclaimed that any slave defecting to the British army would be freed. Uh, and this comes actually before independence, but it becomes, it happens late in 1775 when independence was already virtually assured. So the proclamation didn't really have that much to do with the development of the independence movement, which was almost wholly developed by then. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, so it, it was about a lot of other things, uh, about a lot of the things that Balin talks about, about a lot of the things that were maybe wrong, too, because Balin doesn't say that the colonists were necessarily right. No. At all. No, he doesn't all. say. He and, doesn't, he doesn't you know, even and, and say no. their cause was just. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he doesn't say there really was a plot to deprive the colonists of their liberties. Uh, he, would, he would never say that. You know, the colonists thought 
there was a plot to deprive themselves of their liberties. You know, so, you know, the colonists were, you know, probably wrong about a lot of things. Um, but, um, yeah, the, um, I mean, there, there, there's now been, you know, even more scholarly work about the Constitution. And there's a major debate now about how pro-slavery the Constitution was. And, uh, you know, nobody denies there were pro-slavery, important pro-slavery features to the Constitution, like the Three-Fifths Clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause, uh, among others. But um, that it was, in essence, a pro-slavery document is still actually much debated. Sean Wilentz's book that I mentioned a moment ago argues that it was not, um, that it never actually declared slavery to be a constitutional institution. So it's, it's not mentioning it. By not, not yeah. only by not mentioning it, but you know, ultimately, by allowing people like Salmon Chase to argue that there are a lot of things that can be done within the bounds of the Constitution to weaken slavery, to undermine slavery. So yeah. it's a it's 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 still an open debate. Actually, I wrote these down so I could remember the titles. Um, there's a book by David Wallstriker called Slavery's Constitution. Wow. Which I haven't read, but you know that's well. I mean, if you look at uh, you know the when the that it was when the Confederate Confederate states you know break off from the Union, um, you know right after and then get the Civil War and they write out their Constitution. It's telling that you know and I've brought this up with my relatives in the the South who say, "Oh, the Confederate flag is not a racist thing." I'm like, dude, look at like what the Confederate Constitution it said our uh, our system of government is founded on the basic belief, belief that the Negro is not uh, equal to the white man. Like I think they, that was they, Alexander Stevens. Alexander, said that. He said that. Yeah, like, he said that. it's right. It's right out there. They they yeah. very clearly, and the reason why they were so explicit in saying stuff like that in their is they said they didn't that say it in the constitution. It wasn't in the constitution. Con- no. It was another. No, but I remember. Stevens saying we have to be very explicit about this mm-hmm. stuff because part of the reason that we had we have this mm-hmm. civil war right now mm-hmm. is because the revolutionary generation were not very clear about this. They left a lot of ambiguity, mm-hmm. and that uh, that provided loopholes that the abolitionists drove you know a freight train yeah. of, of of dissension and problems yeah. through. Yeah. And so we're going to close all those loopholes. We're going to be mm-hmm. completely clear. That it All is you have to legal. Do is look at the debates of the secession conventions, and the debates in the secession conventions that each southern state had, deciding whether to secede or not in eighteen sixty sixty one, was not over whether was not over the issue about protecting slavery. Everybody agreed on that. It was only the issue of could slavery be better protected within the Union or in a separate confederacy. 
but it was all about protecting slavery. There was no question, if you look at these debates, absolutely none. Yeah. Um, another issue I'd sort of like to get back on is the thing about, you know, using slavery and race, well, ultimately race, uh, as a means of uniting white folk, rich, poor, right? Mm-hmm. Uniting white folk. And, you know, ultimately now I think bringing that up to date, we see that now in the present-day Republican Party and particularly in the Trump movement. Uh, racism obviously has always existed outside the South, no question about that. And the race riots in New York during the Civil War, you can race riots in Chicago, you can, you can point to innumerable examples. But what the present-day Republican Party and the Trump movement have done is to take the experience of the South, you know, which was always the poorest part of the country, and, you know, one thing, we're better, we're white, right? Mm-hmm. Take the experience of the South and not just nationalize it, you know, in you know this city or that state or this event or that event, but make it into a movement. Even though the movement, you know, never says we're racists, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, the code words, you know, all, all the rest, you know, it's very clear. And, you know, Trump's words, you know, it makes it into a movement. So it's really nationalized. What? It's Two, nationalized. It's, 250 years later, the process that began in colonial Virginia. Is that a thesis? <laughs> yeah, there's. It's so funny because you, you're the points you're making. Uh, there's this incredible sci-fi author that Annalise and I have got into in the last couple of years, Neil Stevenson. He writes uh, uh, what he calls like uh, it's called like hard science fiction, uh, which is you know he researches just extensively, so he gets everything right. It's it's really kind of amazing. But anyway, his uh, his most recent novel is called Fall. And it's it's very, it is by far his most dark novel. It's like it's a very very creepy novel, but it's set in the United States in a couple of decades, and uh, social media and and Fox News and kind of Trump and stuff like that have just uh, things have just broken down completely, uh, and the all of what used to be kind of red states, right? They have become what is called Ameristan. Um, and they, mm-hmm. the Ameristanis have like their life expectancy has gone way, way down and they're living in a very primitive state mm-hmm. and they just are on like, uh, he says they're Facebooked to the, to the nth degree and Facebook has become a verb for being like so confused with conspiracy theories that you no longer are capable of thinking clearly about anything. Uh, anyway, but to your point, and I was just like, my brain was like going crazy when you said that, is that he makes exactly this point where there's this uh, point where one of the characters, Sophia, they're in um, like a northern state. They're in like, I think like in Idaho or Washington state. And these uh, 
white white people are speaking with southern accents and they're not from the south they don't have any uh they don't have any uh, connection to the South. It's not as if like their parents, you know, like you might find people in Indiana or Ohio. They kind of came up from the Appalachians, stuff like that. Oh, the southern parts of those states, they do have yeah. southern accents. No, this is – and she makes the point in the novel. She says these people have absolutely no uh, actual connection to the – and she says it looks oh. like the cultural border moved north. Yeah, no, it's – it's. I, I can speak to that. And, you know, I'm from California – and the vast majority of Californians speak like me. That's where I grew up. You know, people along the coast, greater L.A., greater Bay Area, they all speak like me. If you look at a map of California, most of it, an electoral map, most of it is colored red. Now, that's not where the vast majority of the population lives. But geographically, it's the larger part of the state. And I've always known since growing up there, this is not new. Everybody who lives, not everybody, but people who have grown up in those areas and lived in those areas speak with a drawl, you know, a kind of southern cowboy drawl. So even in, Calif in California... That's true. I mean, I, I know that from my own experience. It's absolutely right on. Yeah, and it's, they are, and they it's are fascinating. Trump it's it's Trump supporters. You could you could say you know wherever there are significant numbers of people who speak with sort of southern accents. I mean, that's that's probably not true, but uh, yeah. I mean, the Trump coalition, of course. You know, also includes all these people who want lower taxes and less regulation and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it does draw along among poor people. And this is my my major, I guess, my major quarrel with Balin. Uh, he doesn't talk about class. And, you know, Balin would probably reply, well, the book isn't really about that. You know, it's about something else. And, you know, fair enough. But I don't think in his works generally, at least to my knowledge, that, you know, he, he would take class or any kind of economic conflict all that seriously. Um, you know, and that's, 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 you know, a problem. And... You know, if you're looking at Trump's America, you have to take class very, very seriously. And, you know, you have to take it seriously, you know, in a way that a lot of Marxists necessarily wouldn't want to take it. You know, that it's, you know, people, it's, it's you know, people from the working class, people from deprived class, you know, who are supporting Trump, or large numbers of them are, you know, who felt betrayed by the Democratic Party, who felt, you know, betrayed by all the trade deals and, you know, Clintonism, you know, and, and, and all the rest, and say, well, yeah, Trump is something different. You know, let's, let's try Trump. You know, and not all of these people are necessarily racists either. 
Well, a lot of them voted for Obama twice and yeah. then Trump. Yeah. Right, including yeah. a lot of my family members in yeah. Ohio, they yeah. voted yeah. Obama twice and, and then Trump. Yeah, um, you know, you can still vote for Obama though, and be worried about African Americans moving into the suburbs. You can, yes. you can do sure. that. Sure, you can do that. Um, I mean, people are full of all sorts of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so. Yeah, I mean that's that's one dimension that you know in in Balin's work on transatlantic migration, he looks a lot at the lower classes because you know a lot of those people are migrating, but you know he's he's I think on the occasion that he's you know <laughs> referred to like new left historians in the nineteen sixties, it's been seventies, it's been with disdain, right? So. But if he if he brought in class to this book, for instance, I'm uh, not sure you could bring it, it in. How the would book. it how would it change the analysis? I'm not sure you could necessarily bring it into that book. And there, you know, in the narrow narrow scope of the argument, it wasn't about class, it was about something else. Balin is right. But then, you know, again you have to go you have to go deeper than that. Who is exactly making these arguments? What were the political dynamics in the places where people were making them? Who were they trying to convince? And there's another recent book about the American Revolution that in some ways takes off from Balin, but looks more explicitly of who was saying what to whom rather than just all these ideas were out there. Um, And again, I'll refer to the title uh, so I can remember it. It's Robert Parkinson, The Common Cause, Creating Race and Nation in the American Revolution. Okay. And Uh he... He argues that during the course – that there was absolute lack of unity going into the American Revolution. Not only did unity have to be created amongst the 13 colonies, which were often going off in different directions and would sort of drop in and out of supporting the cause depending, uh, but you had to you had to convince – people. And, you know, if you look at ordinary people, you're asking about how well off were ordinary people or ordinary white people, I should say, you know, you can, I think others have made the case. I think the case is absolutely compelling. Uh, Americans were, you know, among the lowest taxed people in the world. They had probably the highest literacy rate in the world. Maybe the Netherlands had higher, but, you know, it's certainly, you know, way up there. Um, they had more landowners than others, any other society. You know, all these things, Better right? nutrition. Yeah, Better everything. nutrition, yeah. longer lives. Yeah. You know, what's so bad about all this? Why should we, you know, be worried about, you know, somebody thousands of miles away seeking to undermine our liberty. We're doing pretty well, 
right? Yeah. Um, so you had to the the people who supported the revolution, um, you know, had to had to make arguments as to to why. Now, people like Eric Foner, in his book on Tom Paine, and other people who have who have written in that vein, you know, talk a lot about the artisans as ordinary people, and artisans had imbued these ideas of liberty on the basis of the liberty of their crafts. They look to defenders of artisans in England, like like John Wilkes uh, uh, and the Wilkesite movement, which was this sort of quasi-democratic movement in, in England shortly before the revolution. And, you know, so the, these ideas were bubbling up about liberty uh, within these artisanal movements in urban areas. Okay, that's that's one kind of answer, and you know, certainly as far as it goes, a compelling answer uh, as to why people would support the American Revolution. Um, you know, but there are also a lot more people than urban artisans. You know, and you know, a lot of people did remain loyalists. You know, as as John Adams famously said, you know. You know, one third supported the revolution, one third opposed it, and one third were indifferent. And so the problem was, you know, even he didn't, you know, say that his percentages were an actual reflection of reality, but you had to convince the third that was indifferent, right? And it's like now, you're not going to contribute, you're not going to convince, you know, ardent Trump supporters to support Joe Biden. You got to convince the indifferent. And part of that you can also see in the Declaration of Independence, where one of the crimes of George III in Jefferson's document is uh, unleashing what he called the savage Indian tribes upon our people. With Lord Dunmore's proclamation in 1775, it became increasingly plausible to talk about slave revolts. And the leaders of the revolution, and I'm including people who are such iconic figures and non-slaveholders and even anti-slavery people like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were engaging in this kind of language and that it was it was it was rampant um one of the things he does he says like Balin mentions like there were 40 colonial newspapers you know like which is huge right? mm-hmm. um you know if you looked at the first page of the newspaper front page. These, this was not like headline-grabbing news then. And I know this even in the 19th century, this was true. These were side of learned essays and political tracts on, you know, John Locke or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever, right? Yeah, they pitched at a very high they, level. They, they pitched, it's amazing. The inside, in that tiny print. Yeah. In the, inside of these newspapers. And he said, Almost, says almost all of them and constantly, increasingly, 
they're talking about slave conspiracies and Indian conspiracies unleashed by the British. And, you know, this was the kind of, you know, yellow journalism that, that people, ordinary, more ordinary people, read and passed around. And that there was all the this... The QAnon from back then. Yeah, yeah there got... was all this propaganda. And I'm trying to think of this one thing that Benjamin Franklin was putting together with Lafayette to publish about these different conspiracies. Um, and, you know, so the conspiracy... Thing, I know what you're talking about, because that book that we read together by James Maroney, uh, Hellfire Nation, he yeah. talks about this too, and how so much of American history can be explained by a successive a series of obsessions with conspiracies. Mm -hmm. So everything like from the revolution to the civil war to uh, the founding of the FBI, mm -hmm. which is created by the white slave, uh, the, the white slave trade conspiracy, mm -hmm. right? You remember that the, yeah. the whole thing, yeah. like how they, they believed that there was actually this, like all these like Jews and, and, and Chinese guys were at other, were like stealing white, young white women mm -hmm. and selling them into slavery in, in the Orient and stuff. And they, there was such a push for this that they actually created the precursor of the FBI to investigate yeah. this, right? And then, yeah. of course, the hilariously, as Maroney points out, this same organization, 60 years later in the, in the 80s, uh, one of the most costly investigations in all of the 20th century, the FBI, was looking into whether there was a big satanic conspiracy in the 80s. Remember that? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Evangelicals yeah. got so yeah. they signed so many petitions and they had they got enough power in Congress that the FBI actually investigated whether there were groups of Satanists rounding up kids and sacrificing them to mm -hmm. the devil. Uh, they had to actually seriously invest. This is like if we decided to spend 25% of the FBI's budget uh, next year to investigate um, aliens, like something mm -hmm. like they just, and the, I've seen interviews with the FBI officers who had to do this and they said, you know, we had to take it seriously. We had to, but we felt just horrible. Like we just felt like this was a huge waste of, uh, but it is, there's this all the mm -hmm. way from the revolution to now it's all these conspiracy yeah. theories. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, again, the revolution was not all about slavery and defending slavery. It, 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 it wasn't. Um, and the 1619 people, I think, go wrong there. But, you know, if you look at this stuff during the revolution, you know, and people like John Adams, who wasn't concerned about protecting slavery, or Benjamin Franklin, you know, using all this, this, Race baiting almost. Race baiting. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. You know, to, to get people to support the revolution. Um, like Nixon trying to get elected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or I Trump. Mean, it's, 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 uh, it's really quite, you know, astounding. You know, and there, there was, of course, another thread, you know, the, the whole Puritan evangelical thread supporting the revolution, you know, because, you know, the Puritan menace, the almost to a person were supporters of the revolution and the burgeoning rebel, you know, evangelical movement did too, you know. So, I mean, you get, you know, all sorts of streams going into it. The evangelical movement was not supporting the revolution to protect slavery, yeah. you know. Uh, 
Uh, but, you know, when you get into the revolution, you know, all that becomes a convenient, convenient argument, you know. They're, they're unleashing slave revolts. You know, we're all going to be overrun. Daughters will be raped. Yeah, I mean, if you find stuff like that, which it's very easy to find, I can see how... I don't think Adams actually said that. Yeah. But, but. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it's tough because I guess once a revolutionary movement gets going, as I'm sure you know from your activism and your when you were a young guy in the 60s and... You know, early seventies. That once uh, kind of activism gets going and the temperature gets raised to a certain point, uh, the human capacity for rhetoric. Oh yeah, and for you just sort of throw everything, at, but the kitchen sink. You basically like, oh, and this system is bad because it's bad for the environment and it's bad. For, yeah, <laughs> and you sort of you bring in everything, uh, anything that'll help like make your case. Mm-hmm. And so then I guess for. Uh, for later generations and historians, they have to sort of kind of pick through your, your statements and realize, okay, what is the real thrust of this? And what was just thrown in uh, afterwards as like, you know, well, maybe that'll help convince some people, (laughs) but it's not really the thrust of what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I guess the, in terms of the 1619 project, which was in the back of my mind, uh, quite a bit when I was reading Balin was they say that the United States has from the beginning been about um, upholding white supremacy, that that's, you know, from that's the constant in American history from 1619 to, to present, basically. Uh, the the problem I I have with that is that it just, it seems to me that, you know, in the revolutionary times, I don't know if they would have had most Americans would have had the conception of white that that we have. I, I don't think they would have thought of, you know, the Irish or the Italians or Poles as being necessarily like the same as uh, somebody who was uh, kind of an Englishman well, in they Boston, they right? Didn't. They they didn't, as as you know, we know from the period of Irish immigration. You know, mass immigration in the 1840s. You know, there was a book. It was a book. How the Irish became white. Yeah, so good. You know, yeah, and uh, yeah, but I mean, there was this this concept, I think, of of whiteness. I mean, and historians have debated the extent to which racism grew out of slavery, or slavery was grew out of racism. You know, I mean, chicken egg, you know, kind of debate and mutually reinforcing. And and so on. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a long argument, but you know American history is more than about race. You know, it I I, I think race is very is very central to it, and it's always been there. And how you know whether it will continue, you know be there for a long time uh, from now on. I mean is is say but uh, you know it's always it's always been there and uh, you know reconstruction was in many ways about race but you know you always have these these move there are always movements and there are reactions to them you know reconstruction was you know in many ways a noble attempt to change southern society um, you know with with all of its weaknesses you know but 
wars, and there were reactions, right? And the country settled into this long period um, that you know lasted for decades and decades and decades, where uh, most people accepted uh, either you know formally or informally, uh, you know whether they thought about it much or not, you know a a racist settlement. You know, we can, and and I think mostly for most people thoughtlessly, you know, most people who went to see Gone with the Wind in 1939 were not thinking about race. It was just nostalgia for more pastoral life or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, but, but there's that background. There's that, there's something that's, that lies behind what we're actually consciously thinking. And, you know, there was also very few ordinary filmgoers, you know, who would say, something's wrong here. Right? I mean, there were. There were, there were, there was, you know, black organizations like the NAACP, you know, and, and things like that. But, um, you know, communists, whatever. But, uh you know, people didn't have to be. I mean, there were probably people who were actually not in any obvious way racist who thought, you know, oh, this is wonderful. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's and and that's often I think lost lost sight of too. And you know, I I think I mean, there's been controversy. I mean, it goes along with the you know controversies and so on about you know whether gone with the wind should be should be banned and not shown cancel gone with the wind yeah, yeah. and um, you know HBO did for a while but then put it back on but with an historical preface to put it in context which is fine that's I mean I think that's what should be done with gone with the wind um, but you know think about the actress you know, who won the best supporting role in Gone with the Wind, who played Mammy. And uh, at my age, names suddenly slip out of my mind. Oh, they slip out of my mind. <laughs> they, and I'm they, only they, 45. They, they just so. slip out of my mind. Yeah. And I, I know, I've even located her house in Los Angeles, <laughs> actually, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as part of my research. But anyway... Um, you know, she she played these mammy roles. She was a great actor. And she was in a movie called Song of the South, which is a terrible Disney movie, you know, playing a mammy. She was in um, the uh, the movie with Paul Robeson, um, you know, about Mississippi, uh, you know, where the great, the great, African-American singer, activist, Paul Robeson. She plays a mammy in that movie. Um, She couldn't get other roles. Uh, She was proud of her career, and she's always put forward as a great person who, you know, struggled against Hollywood but could never get the kind of roles that she deserved. 
And, you know, yet, if we banned all those movies, you'd never see her on the screen. Yeah. And I think she would be absolutely horrified at that possibility. Yeah, I mean, how we decide to sort of change these things, I it, it's fascinating to me. I, I just, I was thinking when you were saying that, uh, you know, when I first moved down to Baltimore, I just started Hopkins and I got involved in the living wage movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, Annalise and I were, you know, going to all these like sit-ins and all these demonstrations and stuff. And I remember Jesse Jackson came to Baltimore uh, to talk to us because we had been like occupied occupying the president's building for for days and days and days and it had made like the national news and all this stuff and so all these people were coming uh, it was uh, Noam, Noam Chomsky came to speak to us uh, Jesse Jackson came down to speak to us but I'll never forget because I just thought it was so 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 weird we were in the park you were in the park right by our house uh, it was like uh, there was the Wyman Park and then there, Hopkins would be like right there. Yeah, like it was real a two, Charles it was Village. A Confederate monument and the Union monument. Okay, you remember yeah. this. Okay, oh, yeah. you remember this. Yeah. So uh, try and picture this. There's this huge, huge crowd of protesters, like workers, students, and stuff like that, protesting for a living wage to try and get Johns Hopkins to pay a living wage to its menial task workers. We're all there. Jesse Jackson is on like a, a small podium talking to this this crowd and right behind him is Robert E. Lee on his horse, (laughs) this big Confederate embodiment. And I thought, I remember like, like just turning, saying to Annalisa, I said, am I the only one that finds this kind of weird? Like, why is there Jesse Jackson standing next to like a Confederate, like general, like statue like, what is, that's really, really weird. And she said, no, that's, that's normal. We, you know, live with the contradictions. That's kind of the the amazing thing about the United States, especially these like kind of middle states. They just live with all these contradictions and they're right out there in the moment. Well, I, I heard later on that that exact statue right by our house in that park was taken down, right? And mm-hmm. suddenly people thought, wow, it is kind of weird that we have, you know, a statue to... And, you know, it's like we, we both read Susan Nyman, the philosopher, her book... Mm-hmm. Uh, learning from the Germans, mm-hmm. which is kind of comparing um, sort of how the how America has dealt with the legacy of slavery and comparing it to how Germany has dealt with the legacy of Nazism, right? It's, you don't see any, like, monuments to Nazi uh, leaders in Germany, even ones that, you know, were relatively ethical for Nazis and who, you know, begrudgingly were just trying to serve the fatherland. <laughs> if, we, if we want to find like our Robert E. Lee uh, equivalent among like the Nazi leadership, um, even that guy, mild as he may have been, you know, compared to Hitler or, you know, the other mm-hmm. monsters, he doesn't get a statue in a park. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of, mild people and personally virtuous people who were slave owners and supported the Confederacy and defended slavery, you know. So, yeah. you know, they, they – I mean, I I think the statues of Confederates should come down. Um, I think it's different with people with more mixed 
reputate or contributions. I, I think statues of Jefferson should be there because Jefferson, yeah, I mean, he was a slaveholder, but, you know, his, his, he has a fundamental importance for good things in America. I mean, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, which abolitionists used to help undermine slavery. You know, it's a mixed, it's very mixed. And these things do have to become contextualized. I mean, I don't think, you know, Robert E. Lee has anything going for him except, you know, to say, oh, he was noble, he believed in duty, uh, he was loyal, he was this, he was that. You know, he didn't beat his wife, maybe some slaves, but not his wife. Uh, <laughs> details, uh, details, darling. You know, and therefore, you know, we should honor him for that. Well, you could honor, like, Millions of people for that. Yeah, you don't have to honor lots Robert of decent Lee, people. In Robert the world. E. Yeah. Lee for that. You do have to honor Jefferson for drafting the Declaration of Independence, for creating the University of Virginia, and for a bunch of other things. You don't, you know, and we have to remember the bad things that he that he did too. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, obviously for our listeners, I know a lot of our listeners are, are not here in Canada. You're all over the world, but. Uh, this whole statue issue uh, came home uh, to roost, so to speak, uh, here in Montreal just over the weekend. There's a statue of uh, John A. Macdonald, who's the first prime minister of Canada after Confederation. So he's sort of similar to, uh, you know, he's one of the founding fathers of the of the Canadian state. And um, he was our, our first prime minister, so he would be, I guess... <laughs> Well, if you you know, in a very crude way, equivalent to like a, a sort of a Washington or a Adams or a Jefferson, and um, his statue was torn down by uh, activists over the over the weekend, and it's caused a lot of really rather fascinating discussion, I think, and people sort of uh, just asking the question, like, how do you uh, how do you kind of agree or disagree with somebody from that time like yes okay he set up the residential schools he was kind of a racist in, in many ways um he An was imperialist like he was imp imperialist. imperialist he was uh he was um also you know to, to take your robert e lee example he was personally very very corrupt and like not a good person individually as a, as yeah, a person yeah you wouldn't want him as your son-in-law yeah, <laughs> okay so yeah. um uh, but, you know, do you take down the statue of the first prime minister of, of Canada? Do you say, I, I, you know, I won't miss the statue at all. Um, I, I've never had, I've, I've never had much affection for McDonald at all. I prefer uh, people like, uh, Wilfrid Laurier, um, Lafontaine, I like uh, Cartier, even I like uh, Champlain. Going earlier, I, there's other founders that I that I have a lot like soft spot for. So I don't have any special place for it, but I am kind of disturbed that uh, that it's not a matter of like a political process that you know people sort of agitate for this. They have a petition. They say like we want to bring this down, 
And, you know, which is exactly what happened with Projet Montréal. They've renamed a bunch of streets and they got rid of like Wolf and, you know, but, you know, Amherst, 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 Wolf is still there. Wolf is still there. Uh, They've changed some stuff. So it just seems like I'd prefer to see um, the these things taken down by um, grumpy, hungover city workers uh, rather than like having it being taken down just by activists who are not really accountable to anybody but themselves and their own consciences. Yeah, I you know, I I agree with that. I think there should be it should be part of a political process. Um and I can see arguments on both sides for someone like Johnny McDonald. Um and you know, I won't say we need, we sh- should have a conversation about it. Because I really dislike that word. Yeah. <laughs> when anyone says we need to have a conversation, it means I need to convince you that I'm right. But <laughs> or it's just a way of like I heard this wonderful expression when I was at Hopkins that they would activists would say they would say oh they want to meet us to death, right? So you you sort of mm-hmm. say I'm going to have a conversation. Yeah. It's a way of just talking about it forever without doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. But it should be it should be a political decision, I think. And which side? Of that decision, would I come down on? I have to say, right now, honestly, I'm not sure. I'd, you know, I'd have to be part of that debate to really come to a conclusion about it. Um, I'm no admirer of Johnny McDonald. Uh, he was in many ways a bad man. Yeah, but his place in Canadian history, both for good and ill, is 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 there. Um, I think a strong case could be made. Um, and, you know, again, this is a word that's bandied about a lot, but nobody really talks about how it should be done. Contextualizing the monument. Um, because, I mean, the, the, on, CBC interviewed, you know, somebody from Ganawake, um who's a teacher, um, and he thought it should stay. Uh, He said, uh, you know, he's part of our history, and, you know, when you take it down, you know, you're also wiping away that history. You can forget about it. If he's there, you can say, what is that? statue. There's the asshole who set up the residential schools. Yeah, Yeah. right there. Right there. Oh, he's not there anymore. Oh, you know, okay. Residential schools? What residential schools? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of like that argument. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I heard him, too. I thought he was really, really right on. Like, he's like, what we should have is, it should be like the Holocaust Museum. We should have big, like, plaques next to it saying... Look at what this guy did yeah. and what the results were. Yeah. You know, like. And, you know, school children's tours like they have in Germany. I mean, that's one of the things in learning from the Germans. You know, they take school children to, to places where, you know, that are associated with the Nazi regime so they can see um, and, and have it explained to them. Uh, but, you know, another thing I sort of liked, I'm not sure whether the statue is down yet. I think it's supposed to come down is the big statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, Virginia, on Monument Avenue. And it's in this big circle. You know, it's like the circle where the Arc de Triomphe is in Paris. 
And, you know, it's monumental. It's many, many, many times life size. And yeah. Lee is on his I, I've seen it. I've seen and, it, yeah. Yeah, the base of the statue and the statue itself is now just covered with graffiti. You know, just graffiti everywhere. And, you know, I've never been one, as you know, to, you know, look kindly on defacing public property with graffiti. But I think this is great. You know, I think this, you know, you <laughs> one way of keeping the statue there and making it this public place where people can come, you know, and show what they think about it. You know, mm-hmm. say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't damage the statue. You know, I, have you seen it? Covered in the graffiti? No, I have not. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to be Googling it, it after we're quite, done. It's but... quite incredible. You know, and that's one way of contextualizing the statue. That, that's one way. Okay, I, I see we're, we're running out of time. I want to finish with this question, which I'll, I'll pose to you. Um, it's kind of, I guess, finishing on a, kind of a dark note. But um, Stephen Marsh, uh, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, he's right now uh, – he has got a, a big uh, book contract with a really generous advance. The publisher is super excited about this book. Um, and he, But it's, it's such a dark, dark subject. And his, his book is on the coming civil war. And he makes the argument, we, we've talked about it uh, you know, a number of times, uh, just messaging back and forth, calling back and forth. And then he, we actually talked on the podcast one time about it. But... Uh, it's he has read this he's read a lot of these things also the stuff uh, a lot of the i gave him a lot of bibliography on like the kind of lead up to the civil war and different things he's reading he's read all this stuff and so his his basic his rough argument is that um there have been two other times in the history uh in sort of american history where you had conditions like you have now um, one was in the lead up to the American Revolution. Uh, the next one was in the uh, last two decades leading up to the Civil War and then what's been happening now in the United States. And he says the commonality between these three times is that you have uh, just a crazy degree of political polarization to the point where you get these these ecosystems, these very self-contained epistemological ecosystems where people are only getting their news from certain sources, their mm-hmm. information from certain sources, and all of it fits into a more or less uh, coherent conspiracy theory worldview, right? And it gets to a point where uh, there's, you know, there's nothing that the other side can do won't be interpreted um, in, a, in a bad way, mm-hmm. right? And so, and once you get those conditions, it's really hard to sort of, you know, like in the action movie, clip the red wire, the red, no, the blue wire. Like, it's very hard to disarm that bomb once it's set off uh, because people are just, um, they're just, they're not listening to each other anymore. They're not talking to each other anymore. And you can see this uh, increasingly. He gives like a number of examples from the uh, revolutionary period, then from the pre-Civil War, and then now that you can have an event. Like I, I'm sure you saw just the other day, right? There's this 17-year-old who's driven to a protest by his mother. Yeah, great mom of the year. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, like driven to the protest with an AR-15. Yeah. Like, he's got like a, an assault rifle. 
and he's going there to defend yeah, uh, these like businesses against uh, against like you know protesters and Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa and looters and things like that. And what's really fascinating is Annalise and I watched this show called The Circus, which is amazing, and they had Kellyanne Conway on the circus before it came out um, that the people had been shot by this 17-year-old, right? But, and this white kid. And so when she was on this interview with the circus, they believed that those people had been shot by uh, BLM activists. And so she said, you know, it's just terrible. You know, they're just killing people. And, like, she was uh, very, very criticized. As soon as it came out, like, a little bit later on that day that it was actually this white teenager who had done it. Well, then now he was a kid and well, it was just self-defense and I'm sure mm-hmm. had his reasons and we have to like, and so Stephen Marsh's point is that uh, we have got to the point now of no return where um, there's a critical number of people on both, on, you know, on both sides mm-hmm. um, that are just not listening anymore. And they're becoming more and more radicalized in the same way that uh, the you know northern anti-slavery activists and the southern fires were just more and more radicalized. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what do you think about that that analysis? Well, it's an interesting analysis, and actually, it's very similar to the revisionist argument about the coming of the Civil War. You remember reading Avery Craven? Oh yeah, and you know without. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, going into the issue of, you know, one side was basically right, the other was basically wrong. You know, he describes precisely that process, uh, you know, of both sides becoming so set, you know, in their assumptions, not only about their own beliefs, but about what the other side believed, right? And uh, I think there's something to be said for it now. Um Again, I you know, I think there's probably more right on one side. Well, I know there's more right on one side than on the other side, but or I believe there is. But, you know, it's still you can you can you can see that. And uh Oh, Stephen Marshall would, would agree with that too. I yeah, mean, and obviously but, he would he he agrees morally yeah, with one side, but, yeah, but his even, point even is like side, you have to have people talking to each even, other. Even the side we morally agree with, uh, you know, often is not willing to consider people on the other side, you know, as 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 really human. Uh, and you know that's that's a problem. Uh, and uh, you know that that people do become dehumanized in this in this process, and that's maybe that's inevitable. You know, maybe that inevitably happens. And it probably does when we're in a situation like the one before the Civil War or the one we're in, in we're in now. You know, it's uh, you know, and also what's interesting to me is so much is said about the role of social media in all of this, but you know, they didn't need social media before the Civil War. <laughs> they didn't need social media before the American Revolution. <laughs> they didn't need. Social media in 1917, you know, you can do it without social media because people will say social media is to blame. But, you know, it's happened a lot of times before without social media. Social media probably makes it faster, easier. But 
uh, it can happen without social well, media. Well, I think what, what social media does is uh, is that it, it's possible, and you know, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in The Righteous Mind, you know, why good people are divided by mm-hmm. politics and religion. He says that uh, it used to be that in Washington, D.C., for instance, uh, the Congress, they would, when it was in session, people would actually live there, right? Yeah. Which meant that yeah. you would run into people from, you know, across the aisle. You would run into them because your kids were both on the same soccer team. You had mm-hmm. ballet classes, piano classes. You would run into them in restaurants in town and, you know, Adams Morgan and, like, you know, the, you'd, you'd run into uh, people just socially, informally, and you'd have interactions with them where you're just interacting with them, like as another dad who's like, you know, watching their kid play like a game or you'd run into them at church or you'd run into them like synagogue or, you know, whatever. Um, and that these kind of informal interactions with people uh, build a kind of trust where you you see somebody as as more than just the embodiment of a political position. Or, and any, but increasingly, with after Newt Gingrich said, no, 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 like he did his whole contract with America, and he said, from now on, you're staying home, and you're just flying in to D.C. Yeah. for such, a, and then you're flying back to where you are because we need to keep, uh, he had a whole strategy for this, yeah. right? Well, that made it so that- Keep the some, faithful fired up. Yes, exactly. And it meant that then now they came in, and they didn't have any of these informal- Interactions, so mm-hmm. they just see this person as the enemy, right? And so I do think social media has a similar effect on lots of people. Where, you know, I, I've seen this just in in my friends and my my family and you know their families and stuff like that. Is that uh, very often you could have really warm relations with your you know uncle or or aunt or your cousin. Uh, and you see them on vacations and you see them at weddings and funerals and Christmas and holidays, whatever. Uh, and you get along with them fine and you've got along with them fine your whole life. And you, you kind of know that they maybe have some wacky religious views or political views, but you just don't go there. You've got so much other stuff to talk about, right? But on social media, you're kind of forced to see the political opinions and the religious opinions of your friends and family members in a in a very kind of it's really foregrounded and so that can kind of create a lot of conflict between people who in the past uh, wouldn't have had conflict because they would have just had kind of a polite oh we don't talk about religion and politics at dinner you know we just don't talk and it it foregrounds it it makes people seem like like politics or, or religion or something like that is actually way more important to them than it prob- probably even is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I'll go to that. But before I forget about it and forget her name again, the actress's name was Hattie McDaniel. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> How could I have forgotten that? Wow. Anyway, um, I think I think his point may be true for a certain period in the history of Washington. Um and it's certainly not true now. I mean, people go fly always go back to their districts. Um, but um, before the Civil War, it was a very different situation. You know, people lived in boarding houses, the congressmen, uh, when Congress was in session. And it was usually like 
a short time during the year, six weeks or something like that. They were only in Washington for a very short period. But the boarding houses, increasingly, as you went up to the Civil War, reflected the alienation among politicians of different sides. So you had you know, a boarding house where the arch fire eaters lived. You know, remember in the petition campaign that John Quincy Adams led to, to allow abolitionist petitions to come before Congress, um, the work in, in getting out the petitions was done in John Quincy Adams' boarding house. So John Quincy Adams' boarding house became the place, you know, where all these abolitionists gathered you know, so people had their had their little bubbles then yeah. too. So you know, I don't know. It's, it's I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole origin, obviously, of our idea of like political left and right. It's mm-hmm. the who wanted to hang out uh, with each other in the in the French Assembly, oh, National yeah. Assembly, right? But not and, just in the National Assembly; they stayed at different yeah. places. Yeah, and, and it was like you. Depending upon how much you hated somebody, you'd want to be as far away from them as possible. And that's how you ended up with, like, you know, the people who thought the revolution went way too far, right? Mm-hmm. They ended up being at the, the right end. And the people who thought it didn't mm-hmm. go nearly far enough, they ended up in the far left, left end, right? Yeah. It was, and it, it, people often don't realize that so many mm-hmm. of these, uh, these sort of political things are actually relate to spatial arrangements in the real world anyway thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i i definitely uh i would like to let's let's read uh, manisha's Sinna's new book and let's uh let's uh, meet again for another episode on that book thank you it was a pleasure yeah thank you for having me all right thank you take care